Greetings and welcome to Beauty is Eternal, the art of being your best self for women. Today's episode is called Using Stress to Create High Performance Superstars, Be the Predator and Not the Prey. We have all heard the old adage that leaders can either be loved or feared, but not both. Many modern businesses choose fear and base their work culture around creating an atmosphere of stress and competition, thinking that it leads their employees to greater productivity and higher performance, which will in turn lead them to greater profits. The thinking is that if someone is constantly in a state of great concern that they may lose their livelihood, and on a very primal level to the brain this can mean their life, they will surely give their all to ensure that their work is done as well as possible. They will literally perform as though their lives depend on it and give everything to succeed. These employers think that on the other hand, employees are complacent and will not try as hard if they're happy. Less output equals less money for them. While this fear-based model may succeed for a short while, this can unfortunately be a catalyst for low employee retention, burnout, and lower output over the long term. One possible reason this model still prevails in many workplaces is because employers do not know a better way. Today, we are going to question the benefits of the fear-based model and see if we can perhaps find an alternative model that works even better. Specifically, we are going to look at using happiness for high performance and see if there is a way to keep employees happy and inspired instead of stressed and burned out and yet still performing to the best of their abilities. We are also going to look at techniques that women can use to handle high-stress moments by choosing to go with so-called predator energy rather than so-called prey energy. This episode is all about harnessing stress for positive action. This brings me to today's expert. Our guest today is Shannon Dolan, an author and business consultant and expert on using happiness science for work. I met her when she was living in Germany. She specializes in teaching businesses how to create a culture based on happiness science, where stress is used positively to create so-called high-performance superstars. Shannon teaches her clients that happiness is actually the physical state that best primes the brain and body for high performance. Her work is based on scientific research and studies, and she has helped companies in the U.S. and Germany improve their work cultures. She has also been a featured TEDx speaker. In addition to explaining how happiness inspires greater work output, she is also going to teach us some techniques to transmute moments of high stress to periods of high productivity. Let's find out more starting now. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Shannon. Welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here, Caitlin. Aw. So let's jump right into it. Can you tell me a little bit about what workplace stress means to you and what inspired you to become an expert in this area? Sure. So what's really funny is that stress for 99.9% of human history has been our best friend. It's been our biggest advantage in terms of survival. And in the modern world, we have this same ancient hypersensitive stress instinct. And the problem is, is that it completely 
changes our workplace experience because we end up overreacting to a lot of things. So in the modern world, stress actually makes it so two out of three professionals are burning out, according to a report by Gallup. And this essentially means that we are on a wide, you know, big level um, experiencing a lot of problems from stress and like a lot of us just don't know it. Wow, that's so interesting. So you're saying that we have this primal stress response system built into us for many years and in the modern world it gets overactivated because of the way we currently live and work. Yes. And the question is, is how do we take something that was so valuable to us for so long and turn it into our biggest advantage in business? And this is a very relevant question because if you look at something like the high performance state called flow, you see that stress is a very important ingredient. And then you look at other things like health and you see that stress is actually integral to health. And you can go through your list of daily normal functioning and you see that stress is beautiful in, in how it operates. The only reason why we have so many problems uh, from stress is because we don't know how to manage it and we're very desensitized to it. So am I correct that there's a certain level of stress that's actually ideal for functioning well? And then there's a certain level of stress that is unideal and actually becomes negative, that there's a balanced level of stress that someone could have that would be ideal for them to perform in many areas. Perfectly said, absolutely. There's even on the extreme end a disease where we can't get stressed out enough. This is called Addison's disease. And the people who experience this can't do something as simple as walking up the stairs. And so if we were to take that and look at it in its extreme form, it makes it very clear that, well, there is a certain amount of stress that we need. And the question is, well, what's the sweet spot? How can we find just the right amount of stress throughout our day so that we're entering the high performance state of flow, we're exercising, we're being healthy. Um, and then on the flip end of that, if you look at having too much stress, you actually see that it can suppress the immune system. And people say that anywhere from 75 to 90% of doctor's visits are the result of stress, which now we know is actually mismanaged stress. So you can see that there's this spectrum of not having enough and then having too much and actually experiencing some sort of physical negative effect because of that. That sounds to me like what you're saying is stress in moderation is actually ideal for us. Yes, and we can, we can define ourselves what that moderation point is by how we react to the stress. Because what's interesting is back in the day of our ancient ancestors, it was very clear when we saw a lion that we needed to run from the lion and our stress hormones and everything was very reactive. In our modern world, we have common events at work that our survival brain still perceives as a threat, but it's not anything like a lion, you know, it's more like a rushed project. And if you're able then to look at the, the reality of the situation and how you're actually overreacting to um, these common events at work, 
you can appraise the stress differently. And that simple act of appraising the stress or reacting to the stress is actually the holy grail of using stress to your advantage. And this was the basis of the model of predatory versus price stress, which was developed by a researcher, Wendy Mendez. That is so interesting. And how did you personally learn about this holy grail? Did you have personal experiences with stress that inspired you to start researching this and studying it? How, how did it come to be you became so knowledgeable about this? Was there anything that personally inspired you to look into it? Yes, and I will make a long story short and say that I myself burned out. It started in the beginning, I think, as something very mild. So for example, I had a job that I didn't like, and it was actually a startup, and I had just moved to Germany. The winter was the coldest it had been in years. You know, you could see like the the windows uh, frosting up and I was working on the US sales team, which meant I would work nights. And we were crammed into this tiny office making calls and I felt so isolated and so alone. And it kind of was an emotional response in the beginning. I was very much a high performance person at work. I would win all of the sales competitions and then I would walk home and I would just feel so drained. And what's funny is I, would, I wouldn't have said I was stressed out. I would just say, oh, I didn't like my job. And what's really interesting is that a lot of us are so desensitized that we wouldn't, we might say, oh, we're stressed in the moment or, oh, we're, we're overwhelmed, but we don't really see how chronic and how mismanaged the stress is on a daily basis. So for example, probably everybody around you that you spoke to was like, yeah, I'm also feeling drained after work. It's so normalized that probably when you were looking at your experience, there were so many people around having a similar experience that it didn't strike you at first that something was off. Exactly. And then this speaks to the bigger cultural norm of the company that you work at. And so, for example, at my company, there was the appearance that they wanted to promote a positive workplace culture and that they wanted to be supportive and uplifting and be cool and have fun at work and also work hard, play hard. That was what they were going for, but they lacked the strategies to actually do that on a daily basis to the point where it it helped us manage the stress better and build a an environment where we felt supported and we would actually minimize this excessive stress. And so it was just um it was a very uh, negative, I would say atmosphere. And stress is highly, highly contagious. So even the smell of stress hormones can transmit stress. And if you have a leader who's stressed out, it's it just spreads so quickly to the entire team. And I think many of these factors were playing into my daily experience. For example, I would go home on the weekends and I would just want to sit in front of the TV and watch American movies. And I thought I was feeling homesick or I'd go to the grocery store and the culture, I was in Berlin at the time, and so the culture is very abrupt and I wasn't used to that as an American. So someone would be pushy in the grocery store and I would just start crying. 
And I didn't realize I was so emotional because I was stressed out from work. I just thought, oh, I'm homesick or this or that. But what I understand now is that a lot of times the emotions we feel outside of work are very much linked to our work and we're spending most of our time at work and we're getting a lot of our stress from work. And so this was kind of like the beginning of a journey to understand, well, why am I unhappy and what can I do about it? That makes so much sense. I also had an experience with burnout a few years ago when I was working in a sales job also in Berlin and I remember on the weekends there were about two months where I could barely leave my apartment on the weekends. I was so tired just going to the grocery store was difficult for me. I remember that sense of exhaustion so I know what you're talking about. I wish then that I'd had some tools to help me understand what I was going through a little bit better because at the time for me it seemed fairly normal. When you were telling this story, I wanted to ask you, do you think that the company that you were working for where you were experiencing this, this stress and this burnout, and they were saying that they wanted to promote a culture of happiness and positivity, do you think that they didn't really understand how to do it? Or more that they were actually just saying that they wanted to do that because they felt like it was a good thing to say? Or do you think it was somewhere between? I think that's a great question. It's a combination, when I look back on it, of both. And what what's very clear to me now is that either you're in when you promote a happy workplace or you're out. And it very much becomes a badge of honor and an obsession. And when companies have a lot of happy employees, it means they have promoted an environment where people are having a conversation about these types of issues, about how people feel. And it's, it feels, um, in terms of a day-to-day -day experience, sometimes a little bit warm and fuzzy and a little bit soft. But on the other hand, when you're able to have conversations along these emotional lines, it's tremendous in having the results. They wear it like a badge of honor. It's like a badge of honor that teams and companies wear so that they not just they don't just say that they want to promote happiness, they actually promote happiness. That is so well said. So when a company really wants to promote a culture of happiness, they really make an effort is what it sounds like. It can manifest in different ways, but you really know that they mean it because it's there on, in the day-to-day -day work life. W would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a beautiful story, for example, of a company... And I don't have the company on the tip of my tongue, but they essentially implemented a health and wellness program. And it, there's a, a wide range of things that you can do to promote happiness at work, which is also minimizing stress, but also uh, promoting things like health and wellness at work. So there's a, a broad umbrella that happiness at work covers. And what's so beautiful about this story is there was a woman who seemed on a day-to-day -day basis, like she was very healthy and she, as a part of this health and wellness program at work, started getting some diagnostics with a doctor, just routine tests. And they were able to catch the fact that she had cancer very early on. And it was uh, un, um, 
unexpected because of her age and because of various factors. No one would have known, but because the company had really created an environment where they invested in the health of their team, they actually saved her life. That's a great story. And that brings me to something else I wanted to ask you about. So your job title is Chief Happiness Officer, which I think is amazing. And you clearly understand the importance of having happy employees and a positive workplace. Why is it important for a company to understand happiness science and to have a positive work culture? What are the benefits for the company? So because stress is so instinctive, you need some sort of antidote to stress. And it's actually not really an antidote, it's more like a counterbalance. So, for example, to answer your question, I kind of want to talk a little bit about stress hormones. Whenever you have like these common events at work that are perceived as threats, but aren't really threats, you don't just have a feeling of stress, you actually get a surge of stress hormones that change how your brain and body function. And the question is, unless how do you how do you bounce back from that state? How do you physically uh, change the way your body is processing stress? And the answer is, well, happiness. And that's because happiness is also a physical state. It's not just a feel-good fluff emotion. 40% of our happiness is in our control and can be learned. And when you approach this 40% of happiness like a muscle, you're building the perfect counterbalance to stress so that when you get that surge of stress hormones, you can actually activate happiness hormones. And this, is, this combination of stress and happiness is what creates the highest performing companies on the planet. Very interesting. Yeah. So to, to answer your question, why is it important to promote happiness at work? It's actually important because you're promoting the right physical balance of hormones, if you want to get really technical about it, that allow the team to function optimally. And when you have a very stress-based work culture, a lot of the talent that's so incredible, you know, you have a team and the odds of each person being born on that team are one in 400 trillion. And the things that they can do when they come together are limitless. But a lot of that gets suppressed because of excessive and mismanaged stress. But when you cultivate happiness, you're actually creating that perfect physical and mental state that allows them to really tap into their full potential. So it's sort of like the yin and the yang. So somebody who has a balanced level of stress and also has a, a good experience of, of happiness in that 40% area, that person would be the ideal high performer because they'll be able to use the stress and the happiness together. They balance each other and they create inspiration. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. And it took me years to figure out how to create that perfect balance. And in the beginning, when I started to get into all of the research about happiness at work, and what's beautiful is there's a, a whole segment of positive psychology, which is essentially the science of happiness, and researchers from Harvard and from these impressive institutions studying how happiness changes behavior and performance and productivity and all of this. And so we have very clear numbers on the benefits. And I, I first was introduced to this based on my own journey after my burnout. I 
thought to myself, well, I have a science background. Maybe there's a science that would help me feel better. And I ultimately came across positive psychology. And once I adopted the strategies for myself and used it to overcome my burnout, that inspired me to be a chief happiness officer. And what's beautiful is what this research is, is extremely powerful. But then the question is, um, how do you, the question is, how do you apply it in a way where you practically take advantage of the knowledge on a daily basis? You don't just know what to do, but you actually do it in a way to achieve powerful results. And that's what took me years to figure out. And that's what I've brought together now in the method that I teach, because that's, that's the key. That's the secret. So you, you've taken your research and this science and your experiences to create this formula for helping companies have employees and create a culture where they have people who are somewhat stressed and also happy and working together and working together in a very high productivity level. Absolutely, yes. So to ask you the counter question to that, what happens when you have an employee who's very happy with no stress? I think a lot of companies might have the image if you just have someone who's happy, they won't be very motivated. They'll spend their day having coffee breaks, chit-chatting with their fellow workers, or for instance, playing ping pong. Do you think that this is the case that if a, an employee has too much happiness and no stress, they won't be very productive? Or do you think it's the case that they would actually be productive? Great question. And I think this is probably one of the biggest and most common issues that I have to address when I am initially approaching a company and having this first discussion about a culture centered on happiness. And what I would say to that is that person who is playing ping pong all the time and socializing may feel very relaxed. They may feel like they don't have a lot of stress, but I wouldn't necessarily define their state as happy because happiness, when you look at the science, is very much connected to work and being productive. And someone who's sitting in front of a TV research shows is enjoying that for about 20 minutes. And then after that, the benefits or the relaxation that you feel aren't really happiness. And in fact, it can be contributing to depression and other negative emotions on a daily basis. So I think we have to kind of redefine what happiness is because this person might be very relaxed, but they might not be happy. And then we have more of an issue of someone uh, being too relaxed as opposed to too happy. That's such an interesting point. So they may be experiencing pleasure, but not happiness, because happiness comes in part from accomplishing things. What would you define as happiness? What's your definition of it? Happiness, I think we can look at in different frames, and it's certainly used with a wide variety of definitions. So I don't, I don't necessarily say that my definition includes all possibilities of, of what people can say make them happy or how we define happiness. But I, I do think that in this context of discussing happiness at work, it's very much a physical state where certain hormones get released. And one of the happiest experiences you can have 
is the state of flow, which is the combination of stress and happiness. And so then you can say, oh, well, it's blissful. And then we say, oh, it's happy and stress. So there's like a happy stress word that you could use. And I think, though, to focus on the physical aspect of happiness and to steer away from more of this addictive happiness, there's a lot of, especially in our modern world, one of the reasons why stress is very much out of control is because our go-to toolkit for happiness is very much social media and things that have been wired to make us more addicted. And that addiction, to your point, I, I love the word feels, you know, pleasurable, but it's not actually happiness. I see what you mean. That's a very, very good point. So let's talk about practical application right now. So let's say that you have a company and this company is polling their employees regularly to ask them, how happy are you at work? I know of instances where companies poll employees to ask them how happy they are at work to try and figure out which employees they should fire first, for instance. So they may be looking for symptoms that somebody is not happy at work in order to get rid of them, rather than looking at the root cause of what could be their unhappiness. So let's say you have this company and 50% of their employees are not happy at work. And they come to you and they say, Shannon, we've got this situation. Instead of just trying to fire the unhappy employees, that would be a lot. How can we make this better? How can we make these employees happier? How can we improve our workplace culture? What would you advise them? What, what kind of steps would you tell them to put into place to get more of their employees into this flow state? This is important. Because the premise of the question is assuming that it would be obvious that people aren't happy at work. This is one of the reasons why burnout is prevalent, because it's usually not obvious. And most workplaces, unless they are fully committed to promoting happiness, have a, a generally unhappy population of people that are coming to work every day. And that's because as a society as a whole, we don't really know how to manage our stress instinct. And in the way that we're defining happiness today, where we're able to achieve this sweet spot, this combination of happiness and stress, most people haven't learned this in school. And that's why most people are burning out. And so I would say most companies, whether or not they think that they face this problem, unless they are all in in terms of promoting happiness at work, this is likely the reality that they're facing. So that's just some real talk about the numbers and the statistics and, and what is actually happening. And, and that's okay because, again, going back to for millions of years, it was very important for us to get easily stressed out and reactive. And, and as a society, we haven't really learned how to retrain that. And, and it just, it's a different phase of, human civilization where instead of focusing on needing to run from a lion quickly, we're focusing on needing to get a project done. And it's just a, a shift, a paradigm shift in how we process um, our physical reactions, which is just instinctively stressed out. So now that we kind of have this real talk that most companies are widely stress-based, whether or not they know it, most of their employees are stressed out. Exactly. Whether or not it's obvious or subtle, 
most people don't know how to handle stress, just like most people in society don't know how to handle their stress instinct, and you can assume that there's room for growth. And there's a, a different uh, metrics in, in which you can use to assess how stressed out people are, and it can depend on the industry. And these are almost unimportant nuances in the beginning. First, there just needs to be an acknowledgement of the truth. And once you have that acknowledgement, the entire team needs to be on board with having conversations that they've never had before. And once there is an open dialogue, then there can be change. And this is very difficult because it doesn't mean that we need to spend all of our time talking. And that's kind of why I've started to approach things with micro habits and, and implementing bite-sized change. What I do to create a rapid cultural shift when there are companies like this who are largely unaware and largely unwilling to have a conversation is I encourage the entire team to adopt a micro habit, the exact same micro habit on a daily basis. And we harness the contagious power of stress and also the contagious power of happiness to kind of spread a shift in how people feel, which is really a shift in how people physically process stress. And over time, as we adopt these micro habits, and I, I call it working out your happiness muscles, the entire team builds these super strong happiness muscles. And there's a tipping point where you shift from being a desensitized workforce to a very engaged and happy workplace. So what you're saying is just like stress is contagious, positivity is also contagious. So positive habits that are shared amongst the team will create sort of a ripple effect. Could you tell us a little bit more about these micro habits and give us some examples of what those could be? Yes, and what is a wonderful comparison is something as extreme as bungee jumping. When you go to do a bungee jump, your stress hormones are through the roof. And what's amazing is after you've successfully completed the bungee jump, you get this flood of happiness hormones. Beta endorphin is one research that I have in mind right now. And because you have this flood of happiness hormones, your body calms down within a half an hour after the jump. Contrast this to a stressful day at work. Because we don't have that release of happiness hormones, we have a buildup sometimes for hours of, or days after the initial stress response at work of these stress hormones that just continue to circulate throughout our body. And Dr. Daniel Goleman in his famous book, Emotional Intelligence, talks about how once you're primed for stress, because you have all of this stress circulating in your body, it's just a lower threshold to get stressed out again. So it becomes a vicious cycle. So when you have, let's say, a stress imbalance, your stress levels are very high without the positive happiness emotions to balance them, then you're primed already to be triggered by events. So let's say that you're very stressed out because you have a meeting with your team and it doesn't go well and your stress levels go up through the roof and nothing happens to bring them down. Then let's say you have a call with your landlord and he yells at you about something. This could 
escalate to a higher level than it would have escalated to because you're already primed in a stress situation and those levels haven't been balanced. Would that be fair to say? Perfectly said. This happens all day long if you start to observe your interactions and you see how you have a conversation with someone that quickly escalates, whether it's on your part or on the other person's part. It's easily traced back to certain things. For example, if you've felt, if you've been through something scary, you know, when you were on your way to that conversation, you got a little fearful and it could be small. It's just something that you specifically get scared about. There's a higher chance that you're going to have some sort of argument or conflict. Or if you've just worked on a very difficult project, that difficulty is actually a, a trigger for stress. And that's more likely to result in some sort of conflict. And, and you see this with our family. When we come home at night, there's a, a, an easy, there's, there's a low threshold sometimes for conversations to get a little heated and for people to argue. And this is what Dr. Goldman says again, is that a lot of people fight when they get home after long, stressful days because they haven't successfully bounced back, like the bungee jumpers, from the stress. What you're saying makes so much sense. In this particular example, somebody comes home and they have an argument with somebody in their family, they need to release the stress in some way. So they're more easily triggered and because their body wants to release the stress, they might let it out at someone they care about because they've been holding on to that. Would, would that make sense? Would that also fit into this model? Absolutely, that's exactly what happens. And especially then let's take into consideration the male and female and how people process stress differently. What's interesting is the brain processes stress differently based on the level of testosterone that someone has. So males, of course, have higher levels of testosterone and it actually changes the way the brain will read the environment. And whereas men tend to turn inward in stressful times, women, their brain becomes sensitized to the environment and they actually become more social and turn outward. And if you look at something as simple as reading facial expressions, men have a decreased ability to read facial expressions or people with higher testosterone levels have an, a, a decreased ability to read facial expressions, whereas women or people with lower testosterone levels have a more sensitized reaction to people's facial expressions. And so, for example, I can relate to this. You know, I, I remember an argument I was having with my partner and I could see on his face how he was upset. And this was in the beginning of the conversation. And you could see though that he didn't recognize in my face that I was getting upset as well. So there was this disconnect that was happening and whereas I wanted to be more social and have a conversation about it, he wanted to kind of distance himself and be more aloof until he could process it. And he certainly didn't realize how upset I was getting. And I think this is very relatable for a lot of situations where you have a conversation between men and women, especially when it's high stress. That makes so much sense. And this also echoes situations that I've seen in my life, that men and women tend to deal with stressful, stressful situations very differently. I had a friend who was asking me for advice about his then girlfriend. 
and he was telling me that she was very unhappy with her job and she would come home at the end of the day and she would complain about work, but she never looked for other jobs. He would advise her, oh, why don't you look here for a job? Why don't you look here? And she wasn't taking any action. So he was confused why she wasn't listening to him. It was actually hurting his feelings a little bit that she wasn't taking his advice. And I said to him, well, she might be processing it in the more feminine way, which is to talk about the problem, which for many women helps resolve the problem. Because as you were saying, women turn outward with stress, whereas men turn inward. So a man might be more likely to think, okay, I need to take action now. This is what I've decided on. And a woman might be able to talk it through with her friends and then feel that the situation is a bit more resolved. It's fascinating because, of course, we're not making any blanket statement. There's exceptions, and it all depends on hormonal chemistry. And these researchers who are studying this looked at the specific proportion of testosterone to how the brain processes stress. But generally speaking, there are certain patterns, and by understanding these patterns, we can manage the situation better. And this actually I, gives me an opportunity to kind of circle back to a question that I didn't fully answer before about this individual or this person at work who's, who's feeling stressed out and, and what they can do. What can they do? <laughs> that's the, so, that's a million dollar question. <laughs> so, so basically, I was talking before about happiness muscles and having everyone adopt the same microhabit on a daily basis so that they can strengthen their happiness muscles and harness the contagious power of, of happiness to create a happy workplace. So that, that's just a general guideline. But more specifically, what needs to happen is there needs to be a very quick and frequent and intense reaction in the moment you feel stress just almost as if you were simulating a bungee jump where you successfully completed the bungee jump. And it, not quite that extreme, but I wanted to give you that image so you have kind of an ex a comparison to make in terms of how involved you need to be in bouncing back from stress. And so the, the first thing you need to do is build an awareness of when you're stressed out because I think most companies lack an understanding of how stressed out their workforce is because a lot of us in general don't even know that we're stressed out. And the best language we can learn is the language of how we feel. Anytime we feel any negative emotion, anger, irritation, sadness, frustration, this is always stress in disguise and we can simplify how we speak the language of stress by just understanding that anytime we feel anything negative, it's an instinctive stress reaction to something. And once we simplify our analysis of the fact that we're stressed out, we can react much more quickly. We don't have to get into the who, what, why, when, where. We can just understand, hey, I'm now increasing my levels of stress hormones and I need to take immediate action. And once you have the awareness, you can take action much more quickly. And so the action piece relates to doing some sort of activity that will release a happiness hormone. It depends on how much time you have. And what I call these with my clients is we, we call these our to-dos. And we spell do's a little bit differently. We spell it D-O-E. S, and each letter represents a happiness hormone. So we have 
D, dopamine, O, oxytocin, E, endorphin, S, serotonin. And so we, we generally say these are our to-dos, and this is the action we have to take in the moment as fast as possible to essentially bounce back from that stress response. And if we're in the middle of an intense negotiation, we can't go on a quick walk because we're in the heat of the moment. But what we can do is take a lesson from the Navy SEALs and start focusing on our breath and being mindful and breathing more deeply. This is one of the best ways Navy SEALs train themselves to calm down. And that's because we have the sympathetic and the parasympathetic response in our body. The sympathetic is the stress response and the parasympathetic is the rest and digest response. And so we're constantly going back and forth between these two states physically and we can actually, it's a form of, of, um, of having us go to the rest and digest mode because we, through our breath we can control our sympathetic response. And so this is just very simple in terms of, you know, you start to activate, you start, you, start to, you, you start to exercise mindfulness, which has a certain effect on the prefrontal cortex of your brain. This is the part of the brain that's associated with willpower and also emotional regulation. Going back to our intense negotiation, you need to be a clear-minded, logical problem solver. And by being mindful and focusing on your breath, you are activating the part of your brain that will help you do that. And also you're facilitating this constant bungee jump back from stress so that throughout the day it doesn't build up. And this is much easier said than done. So it goes back to the idea that you need to be very speedy, very intense, and you need to frequently do this. And so we call it the, the triple A formula. And I'll give you the little hint that I use, so the first A that we talked about is awareness. And the second A that I'm gonna put in there before you take action is to anchor yourself. And anchoring is just some sort of physical signal that you do to remind yourself that, hey, my logical thinking brain is getting turned off by my stress hormones because that's what stress does. And I need to anchor myself until I can bounce back and take action. So an anchor might be just taking your pointer finger and your thumb and pressing it together so that you make an okay signal. And so this is a physical, for example, let's say uh, your boss comes and tells you, hey, look, like we have to speed up our timeline for getting that project done today. You only have an hour to finish this article you are writing. And all of a sudden, that overwhelm of having an hour to do what you needed to do in three hours instinctively triggers the stress response, and you start to feel frustration or anger about the situation. Once you have that sense of negative emotion, you use the first A in the formula, which is awareness, and then the second thing you do is you anchor yourself. You can make that hand position, for example, the okay signal, and that allows you to kind of physically remind yourself before you really have an, a total stress response that you need to take some sort of action. And so that's where the third A comes in. You can start being mindful. You can start breathing deeply. If you have a little bit more time, maybe you want to get up and go do a kind deed for someone. 
This, for example, releases serotonin. And that's in our to-dos list. This is the happiness hormone. And that one kind deed will completely change that next hour of time and maximize your mind and maximize your thinking so that you optimize your chances of getting it done even though you're still in a stressful situation. That is fascinating. I have a couple of questions for you about the process itself. So let's say now that you're focusing on your breath, you've realized that a situation is making you stressed out. So you go and you start focusing on your breath. Do you want to change the cadence of your breath? Do you want to try and breathe more slowly, count one, two, three? Or do you simply want to observe it and be aware of it? Yes, you do. You want to, when you, this is, I'm so glad you asked this so I can clarify. When you are in a stressed out state, instinctively your breath speeds up and you have potentially a more hunched posture, which also restricts your breathing. What you want to do, especially if you're at your desk and you have a more hunched posture in general when you're sitting, you want to bring your shoulders back and have a good posture, which is another body language signal that you should not have as much of a stress response. And then you want to start to slow down your breathing so that it's not speeding up as instinctively it does. And what I like is the count of five seconds. So you want to breathe in for five seconds and you breathe in through the nose and then you want to breathe out for five seconds. And depending on how you feel, you can change the length of time. This seems to be like a good amount of time that people can immediately adopt whether or not they're practiced in different breathing techniques. But of course, if you feel like you're not getting enough air, you can work your way up to five seconds. And if you focus on this counting as well as slowing down your breath, this is the signal that you need to your body that says, hey, you can relax a little bit. And it gives you the edge in getting control of the situation. As you're saying this, I'm starting to do just that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And, and most of us throughout the day should be rethinking our breathing in general because yes, we're instinctively getting stressed out throughout the day, but a lot of us have shallow breathing. We're not doing the deep belly breaths. And as a result, it is on an ongoing daily basis, something that we could work on and that would immediately reduce our stress levels. Because it's not that stress is bad, it's just all of this excessive stress that adds up. And because of the way that our world works, our modern world works, and because we have all of this addictive happiness, it's kind of uh, a spiral into things that just add to the stress as opposed to take away from it. And once you're caught in a stress spiral, then it tends to only get worse until you do something to break out of it, is what it sounds like to me. And I have another question about taking action. So let's say that now you uh, have become aware of the stress, you focused on your breathing, and you've anchored yourself, and now you have a little bit of free time. What type of action should you take? You mentioned doing a kind deed, going for a walk. Is there a time limit to when you can take these actions to when, as to when they're still effective? Can you tell us a little bit more about how soon you need to take these actions and give us some more examples of what kind of actions you can take? 
Yes, the idea is to take action immediately because going back to predatory versus prey st stress, the only difference between predatory, which is the good type of stress, and prey stress, which is the bad type of stress, is how you react. And so the faster you can react, the better that you can ensure you are taking advantage of good stress. And the whole thing with predatory stress is you're able to fiercely pursue your goals, to have perseverance, to be resilient. And with prey stress, you're getting into the habit of defeat, retreat, and withdrawal. So being the prey versus the person who's pursuing with intense power all of their goals and dreams. And the difference between those two is literally going back to Wendy Mendez's research, how you're appraising or reacting. So the faster you can react, the better you're gonna be able to use good stress more often. And depending on how much time you have and depending on how stressed out you are, whatever the stress stimuli is, it, it depends on how much time you should devote to happiness. If you're in a negotiation, you have a very short time and you can only do something like be mindful or slow down your breathing. If, for example, you're at home at night and you're starting to get in an argument with your partner, instead of starting to have that reply or comeback or conversation, what you can do is catch yourself feeling that negative emotion, go do a kind deed, and then come back because you've activated that logical part of your brain and have that conversation again. And you can see how it's not just about getting space, but it's about activating that happiness hormone that will help you calm down. And so you, you go by your emotions constantly, you constantly have this awareness and you do your best. You know, if you're working on a project in the middle of a day, you don't have time to stop the project. You just focus on maybe something that you're grateful for. This also releases a happiness hormone. So there's certain things that always are on our to-dos list and that's just some training whether it's breathing, gratitude, mindfulness, you know, journaling, there's different things that you can do. And it's, it's all about intertwining them throughout your day, depending on the situation. Would exercise also be something that would work for releasing the stress? Yes, they say that 10 minutes of exercise, taking a brisk walk, for example, will give you more energy than eating a chocolate bar and they <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have the same sugar high and low and for me I, I can very much relate to this I'm I'm in the middle of a project I don't want to get up and to interrupt what I'm doing so I just grab some chocolate and it tastes delicious which <laughs> I get a dose of dopamine because I'm eating the chocolate and then I get this sugar high which gives me a boost of energy but the problem is, is, for example, over time, because we were meant to move and because we were meant not to sit all day, which is why, of course, we've heard a million times sitting is the new smoking, that it's habits like that that are constantly contributing to how we feel. And now we know that how we feel isn't just an emotion, it's a physical state, and it's contributing to, in the big picture, how much we're balancing stress and happiness in our life so that we're promoting health emotional health and also uh, healthy relationships. And they found that the, the longest study on human happiness focused on what it was that enabled people to live the longest. And the people who lived the longest were the people who had the strongest social relationships. They followed 
Harvard students up until their 80s, and they, they saw that the people who were living the longest were the ones who indeed really focused. So it's, it's so important for us to really preserve our social relationships and to not use our our family, our friends and family as an outlet for our stress, not just because it's it's good practice in terms of uh, happiness, but also because these are actually integral to our, you know, our long-term health. Connection is so important for our physical and, and mental health. Yes, absolutely. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, the way that men and women process stress differently because of their the differences in their hormone levels, would you say that men typically respond more with predator stress while women typically respond more with prey stress, all things being equal when neither party has recognized how to properly deal with stress? And if so, do you think that this could affect men being promoted versus women being promoted into higher positions, these natural stress reactions, if they are naturally different? Ooh, that's a fantastic hypothesis. And I would love to study something like this. I think there's a few pieces to what you said that are important to kind of separate out. I think that generally when someone is responding to stress and they are, for example, let's look at Gary Vaynerchuk. He's this high performance guy, famous now for producing a ton of content, loving the grind, He's very conscious about incorporating gratitude and having a certain reaction to stress and a certain opinion about the grind where he's really reframed working hard as a very positive thing, whereas most people say, oh, I have to work so hard today. And he's trained the way that he thinks about stress in a way where essentially he's he's naturally invoking happiness hormones, even though he's working really hard. So this is something that some men do very naturally, men and women. On the other hand, there are men who are ruthless, who have, men and women who are ruthless, who have changed stress and who really fuel um, themselves based on more of an alpha like an alpha male type presence. So they they are fear-based leaders. They like to intimidate people, like to... Um, and it just goes back to the jungle. When I say these things, I'm really thinking about it in terms of having an animal who kind of has a territory and who's very aggressive, and that's their way of defending their territory. The animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about predatory and prey stress, I think it's easy to overlap good stress with alpha stress. And I think alpha stress can can be very negative. So it's more of, I think they're a little bit separate. But to your point, I think that still plays into the fact that men and women do have different reactions to stress and it can translate into being more of a predator or to a prey. So there's a lot of overlapping concepts. Um, But I I do want to make the distinction that there is certainly this alpha piece, this primal territorial piece that you do see in the corporate world quite a bit. That makes a lot of sense. And let's say that you have somebody and they're looking for a new job and they're interviewing with a few different companies 
and they want to make sure that the company that they work at has a good culture for happiness, that they promote positive stress, positive attitudes. How would somebody looking at a company from the outside determine how happy the employees are there and how good the work environment is? Are there questions that they should ask? Are there signs that they should look for? Or do you think that they could approach joining a new company and possibly changing the happiness culture as they work there by bringing in what they've learned previously, if they're familiar with your science? Mm, Yes. I think it's a badge of honor that companies are wearing right now, and they, they invite press, for example, to cover them and to be uh, featured in different articles saying, oh, hey, we're promoting happiness at work. And I think when you get to the point where there's a lot of publicity about the things that they're doing to promote happiness, because it is trending right now and because it is something to be proud of, there's a lot of times where you can research a company and see how much they emphasize these types of initiatives. And you can see how much or how little they're doing it. And you can get a feel for how authentic it is. And then certainly in the interview, you can ask, how it practically translates to daily work. And you have companies who really set the standard. Bain Consulting, they have such devotion to promoting happiness. They have earned first place on Glassdoor's best place to work list. Now, yeah, multiple years because it is so much a focus of theirs and you can see how it translates to the bottom line. Michael Bush, who is the creator of Best Place to Work lists, found that companies with a lot of happy employees have triple the revenue growth. And you see that reflected that a lot of these companies that are so devoted to happiness aren't just happy, but because they've made it a part of their culture that they are quite successful. And and these are some of the metrics you can use when making a decision about your job is how successful is the company, what kind of trajectory is it on, as well as what kind of press has the company gotten about being happy at work, because we live in a very press-oriented world, and asking questions in terms of practically, are we just going to have parties once a week? Because if they're saying, oh yeah, we go and we grab beers after work, that's actually not how you promote happiness at work. I think that is the typical way that companies promote themselves. Oh, we have a a great culture. We have free beer every Friday evening for all employees. Absolutely, yeah. And I remember in Germany, it was interesting because a lot of the startups would have these social events. And actually, the startup I was working at, we would have the Christmas party and they would spend a ton of money. And the, I guess... The intent on one hand was a good one because they wanted to have people make social connections. And if you are friends with people at work, then you get less stressed. But that's very much kind of kindergarten of happiness at work. And in some way, (laughs) it's, it's, uh, it's really not. And also, it's like the same thing with people buying ping pong tables, okay, I guess it's getting some exercise, people are building some social relationships, but it's certainly just the tip of what can be done in terms of promoting a happier culture. And it doesn't necessarily take a lot of money. It's more about these habits that people have in terms of their approach to work and in terms of their support. And 
certainly these things can be a part of a, a bigger strategy, but they are, are minimal in terms of their effect and, and being comprehensive. It sounds to me like if a company has a really positive work culture, it will be fairly obvious that you don't have to go, you know, spy on the company, pretend to be a cleaner to try and detect it, that <laughs> by doing a little research about it, asking a couple questions, looking at the, the people who work there, trying to ascertain if they're stressed, it seems like that would be a pretty good way to get an assessment about the happiness level, that you don't need to go to any, any extremes to, to figure it out that a company that has a good happiness culture will likely make it pretty obvious. That's what it sounds like to me. Well said, yes. So can I ask you for some advice for any, uh, any listeners who might right now be working at a job where that say they're, they're pretty satisfied, they're pretty happy or they're happy and they'd like to ask for a raise. And I think this can be a particularly intimidating issue for a woman when she wants to ask for a raise and she wants to ask for a promotion, but she's nervous about it. How would you recommend she use happiness science to overcome her nerves and the stress of the situation to move forward? What advice would you give her? This is extremely important to talk about. And there's a great book called Women Don't Ask, which lists a lot of the science and research behind many dynamics related to women in the workplace. And one of the things they talk about is how statistically women don't ask for raises in the same amount as men do, which means overall this very much contributes to the discrepancy in pay between men and women. And if you have a woman, if you have if you have a female do a job and a man do the same job, females tend to ask for less for that specific job in terms of when they were studying this in more of a research setting. And I think it's really important to keep these things in mind because it translates to many different aspects of our life as women. And Certainly, in a negotiation in general, you need to have a justification for the numbers that you're asking for. And the question is, do you really want to raise, first of all, or do you want flexibility? Do you want to work from home? Or could you bring that into the conversation and say, okay, well, if you don't want to give me a raise, perhaps you can offer an alternative like working from home once a week or something like this. That's very, very smart. That's great advice. So in general, having a, a strategy where they say that the best negotiators can speak to every number that they put on the table to the point where there is no argument against the number. And if there's a standard that your particular position gets paid, then you can have hard data that you bring in and say, this isn't something that I'm asking for. This is just a fact that when people are in my position, they get paid X amount. And therefore, I think that especially given my performance and you can point to various positives that you have had in terms of output, then you can use that as all of the reasons why you're asking for a raise. And you can also maybe encourage your company to give you a raise by presenting other options that are maybe 
more difficult for them to provide. Maybe you really wanted to work from home and then you come in and you say, hey, I'd like to work from home. And they say, okay, well, we don't want you to work from home. And you're like, okay, no problem. People in my industry are making this amount of money. I, why don't you give me a raise instead? Because that would help me compensate for the fact that I can't pick up my child from school and I have to put them in daycare or something like this. That makes so much sense, Shannon. Where have you been all my life? Amazing <laughs> advice. And in terms of dealing with the stress of asking the question to begin with, would it make sense for someone to focus on their breath, take a walk be beforehand, to use the stress techniques before the stressful situation even begins? Mm, mm, yes. Very good points because I think this speaks to one of the biggest stress stimuli, which is public speaking or speaking in social situations that are work-related or a little bit more high stress. And one of the biggest things, I actually, I, I started out some of this journey because I had such a fear of public speaking. And what I learned as a part of overcoming public speaking, which ultimately became overcoming my stress, was you very much need to practice under pressure in stressful situations and you need to have the words very much written out and then practiced because in the moment that those stress hormones kick in, your logical brain turns off. And if you haven't practiced certain sound bites that you're going to say, what will happen is you don't have that vocabulary because your body is in fight or flight mode. So a lot of this comes down to building a muscle memory for your words and for feeling the stressful situation. So by the time you actually get to game day, you're able to do what famous athletes do and practice what you've, you know, and, and apply what you've practiced because all that you've practiced is really what's going to come out under pressure. That's very interesting. So what you're saying is make sure you have a good basis and that you're well practiced because in the stressful moment, you won't be able to think as clearly. This actually reminds me of situations in my life. For instance, I, I gave a speech at my brother's wedding and I was very nervous beforehand, but I read through it, I read through it, I read through it, and when it actually occurred, I wasn't nervous anymore. So I was almost thinking, oh, maybe I underestimated how stressful the situation would be, but perhaps, in fact, it came down to the fact that I had prepared it so well that even under the stressful situation, it wasn't as stressful because my memory was able to reproduce what I wanted to say. That would actually help to explain that. I never understood that. That's very interesting. And I would agree with your assessment. Absolutely. And did you do in the moment in terms of when you were standing up and actually giving the presentation, did you do any other techniques to help you stay composed? No, I didn't do any other techniques. I just read through this speech maybe 20 times, so I knew it mostly by heart, and then I had a copy of what I wanted to say with me in my hand in case I also needed to, to read it. So I had a backup plan with me in case I got nervous and stumbled, and perhaps just having the backup meant that I didn't need to use it because knowing I had it was quite reassuring. Mm, yes, that was a good idea. Did you did you also maybe focus on your brother when you were in the in the actual situation of 
your brother's wedding and did you focus on your love for him or maybe something positive about the situation that helped? Well, I did look at the faces of my family and my friends, particularly that were there in the audience when I was speaking. Ah, perfect. Yeah. So overall, I did focus on something quite positive. I didn't look at strangers' faces. I looked at the faces of people that I knew and trusted. Beautiful. And then that would be an example of how you instinctively released a happiness hormone to help bring your stress levels down just a hint and give you the edge. So the combination of having the practice, but also some sort of strategy, whether it was the breathing, whether it was looking at familiar, friendly, loving faces, all of these things are examples of how you counteract that stress response. So you find more of that perfect combination of stress and happiness. Wow, thank you so much for helping me understand that. That's that's amazing. <laughs> I'm so glad it helped. And I was also thinking, it's much easier for us to learn things when we're children. So you can certainly, I believe, teach adults better ways to handle stress, to get into the flow state by combining it with happiness, for instance. I was thinking it might be easier to teach people this when they're very young because children have very malleable minds. Have you thought about teaching this to children and what type of age do you think would be ideal for, let's say, a parent who wants to teach this to their child? Oh, I love that idea and I love that question and it certainly has crossed my mind. I find myself teaching to younger and younger audiences. I started with companies and then I moved to colleges and I have had success there. And and what is lovely to see is how students are very open and also much more informed about a lot of these topics because I think, for example, when we were in school, a lot of the studies and a lot of the research and all of the information that we have access to today wasn't available. So when we were growing up, we weren't necessarily trained or even privy to various ideas along these lines. And I think even if students today aren't experts in this area, there's seeds that have been planted. You see articles about mindfulness in schools and meditation, and it's just much more a part of our vocabulary as a society. And so I think it is very important to train people at an earlier age. And I I certainly see myself moving in that direction. And what's, what's wonderful is that we're in an environment and in a time where it's becoming a common conversation to talk about these types of, of topics. Wow. That's, that's so interesting. And that makes a lot of sense. And beyond helping people of younger and younger ages, what else does the future hold for you, Shannon? What else do you have coming up in your plans that you can share with us? I have a vision of people really approaching happiness like a muscle to the point where we have a membership to the happiness gym just as common as we have a membership to the, uh, there's as many gyms as there are uh, happiness gems. And basically, I want to see people take their emotions and learn about them and then train them because I think we've always felt very 
at the mercy of our emotions and they seem fleeting or impulsive, but actually we can train ourselves. And by training our emotions, we influence our performance and our ability to be more productive and to achieve things that we weren't before because we understand that, oh, we're not stressed out right now and this is bad, but oh, this is actually a a fuel for us getting more work done and we can use this energy to pursue our goals. And so I think there needs to be a paradigm shift where we really, on a daily basis throughout the day, see happiness and our emotions in general as a muscle and actively work to cultivate the positive, the happiness emotions so we can really tap into this unlimited potential. That's amazing. And back to what you were saying, if we are at the mercy of our various emotions as they arise throughout the day, then we're also at the mercy of events that occur. So for instance, you know, a car that drives too closely to you on the street, a a dog barks at you, we're really at the mercy of those if we don't know how to take hold of any of these emotions that would fall under the stress blanket and turn them into a positive experience or at least release them so that they're not a negative experience. I think that that makes so much sense. Your work is so important and I'm just blown away by how knowledgeable you are about the subject. You are truly an expert. I am waiting for your best-selling novel to come out (laughs) about this. It's amazing. Well, I am so thankful that I had the opportunity to discuss these different aspects of uh, life that have taken me years to learn. A lot of it I've, I've learned the hard way and it's been through struggle. And to your point, I think you're you're finishing on the most important point is we can't control what instinctively stresses us out. That's automatic. There's a hardwiring for millions of years that we have. But what we can do is control how we react. And with strong happiness muscles, with an effort to really bounce back on a daily basis from stress and to explore what authentic happiness is, which is these to-dos, the, just to recap again, things like mindfulness, kind deeds, gratitude, exercise, forming you know, so close social relationships, all of these things are helping us to create that perfect balance, that perfect coupling of stress and happiness because stress is a wonderful, beautiful part of the human experience. It just has a bad name because it's been mismanaged. And so we really need to love stress because when we exercise, when we do different things, stress is all involved in that. And our our stress levels naturally fluctuate throughout the day. And so we need to have an education about what happiness really is and also what stress really is. That is so well said. And you bring up so many really important, really relevant points. So where could a listener learn more about you? What, what kind of resources can they, can they use that you've created to become an expert also in managing stress as a happiness science? Well, I would very much welcome any questions and certainly any hellos from people who are listening. And the best place to reach me is my website, which is happyatworkouts.com. So there's an S at the end. 
and that would be a great first step and then we can take it from there. Well, I'm also going to put all the link and all the information below this on the website. And before I let you go, I have three final questions that I ask all of my guests. So please humor me. <laughs> the first question is one book that you would recommend that everybody read. And you've mentioned, I don't know, five to ten different books in this interview alone. So you've already given a lot of <laughs> fodder for this question. But if you had to pick just one, what would you choose? I will go in a different direction from the books that I mentioned, and I would recommend The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acor, because he is this Harvard happiness researcher who I think really shifted the entire conversation about happiness at work. And he talks about how happy people are 31% more productive, and he gets into other things like creativity and uh, problem solving and a lot of really fun tangents that we could have gone on today. <laughs> and it's a great summary and a great source of information. That sounds awesome. I have to check that out myself. Uh, my next question for you is about your favorite coping mechanism that's healthy in a time of stress. I think you've already given us a lot of possible ways to manage stress. What is your favorite way to do it? What's your, what's your favorite activity to release a stressful situation? I think I'll use this question as an opportunity to really reiterate something. And that is that even though I have spent years researching this and I have an incredible amount of knowledge, it doesn't change the fact that I have this same ancient hardwiring to get stressed out. And just knowing this isn't the same as doing it. And so I, I think that what has made the biggest difference in terms of my day-to-day -day experience of really managing my stress instinct is focusing on how to frequently throughout the day build my happiness muscles and do my to-do list. And it's one thing when you say it, it's another thing when you're actually in the moment figuring out like, why am I still stressed out? You know, I've heard this podcast about stress. I don't really know practically how to apply it. And this is where practice and constant effort comes in. And also how when you are stressed out, your logic goes out the window. Like it is just not there. And that means that your even awareness, you're like, oh, should I think of a negative emotion? It really takes practice just to start to build awareness of of negative emotions in general. So anyway, I, I don't want to make this answer too long, but go ahead. <laughs> I, I think it's it's <laughs> um, it's so important to know how illogical people are when they're feeling any sort of negative emotion, which is stress in disguise. And that's why that anchoring comes in. And if you really don't anchor, you don't have any signal that will help you to kind of stop and and go and 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 like stop this release of these aggressive hormones. So I, I just think there there really there needs to be this emphasis on it, it doesn't even matter if you've heard this podcast. It really will come in the moment when you're in the heated argument and you want to say that awesome comeback that you have instead of indulging in that to just take two minutes, you know, go on Facebook, um, 
search for someone who's like having a tough time right now. Like, you know, there's different people who like different groups who like kind of come together and, and you know, for example, do a kind deed and offer them support and write them a nice message and, you know, encourage them or something like this. You know, this is an example of a kind deed you could go to quickly. And it's like on your computer, you know, it doesn't take any in intense thought or even do a kind deed for the person you're arguing with, you know, go get them like a glass of water or do something nice and then come back to the conversation and just see how that alone has changed the entire dynamic of your day. And what will help you is that if you had said that awesome comeback, you would have these stress hormones coursing through your vein for hours, days, and then every time you thought about that argument and that cool comeback you said, you would also re-stimulate stress hormones. So you, you're just propagating this in, intense cycle of reactions and days and, and weeks and who knows how long, sometimes even years. People never recover from things that people said or situations that they were in. And some things we can avoid, but a lot of things are, are man-made, are self-created. Well, and certainly long-term stress, if you don't break the cycle on a daily basis, can also lead later to serious illnesses. So it's super important for health reasons to take the steps that you mentioned and break the stress cycle as it happens. And don't give in to that, that urge to say that, that super witty, witty comeback that will hurt your partner. Exactly. Like going back to that study, 75 to 90% of doctor's visits are from mismanaged stress. And it's one thing to hear that statistic. It's another thing to actually get sick. And even people who have cancer, when they are in the recovery process, they have found that chemotherapy or whatever method of recovering they use is actually very much helped by social support and by having certain a positive mindset and different things that they do to actively bring down their stress levels. And this is one, one very important example, but there's examples like that all day long of how having a, an ability to manage your stress hormones very much facilitates your health and performance and relationships and, and on and on. And Harvard found that happiness spreads to the friends of your friends of your friends. So when you are actively engaged in building your happiness muscles, you are affecting an entire ecosystem of people that you're connected to that you've never even met. That's so well said, and that's such a good point. How powerful we are to, to change the people around us that we don't even know simply by being positive and by being gracious and by being kind. That we're much more powerful, actually, than we realize. Yes, and it's incredible to think about. That is. And it's astronomical, the percentage of doctor's visits that are stress-related. That's an astronomical number. Right? And what's amazing is our ancient ancestors were not going through the same stress-related problems. And, then, and the question is, well, why? And the answer is they were running from lions, and then once they successfully ran away from the lion... That was their equivalent of successfully completing the bungee jump. <laughs> yeah, it was over. Right. But with our modern day work, when the stress gets triggered, 
the the completion that same process that same physical pro we, we just we live in a different world with the same instinct so we need new tools to better manage our stress instinct that is so well said so my final question to you shannon is what place in the world would you recommend everybody visit one place that you've seen that you just love Ooh, ooh! i was impressed by berlin and <laughs> it's this beautiful combination in Europe of oh history and wow that all as I start to even talk about Berlin I have a ton of memories what's wonderful is that I think it's very much a tourist destination and a destination for a lot of international people and that means that there's a lot of events on an ongoing daily basis you could fill your day all day long with the various wide range of events and things that you can do and, and meetups. And so even if you're traveling alone, you could go to Berlin and you could look at the meetups and the events and you would have, especially in the startup community, there's so many fun things on a daily basis. It's like college on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> That's great advice. <laughs> It's a lot of fun. Berlin is amazing. I might be a little bit biased because I, I met know. you in Berlin, but I, I think that's a very I good know. choice. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's a, it's a wonderful city and it's beautiful. Like some of the areas are just, they, they have the architecture and it's incredible. Well, next time you're here, I look forward to spending some time in Berlin with you <laughs> once again. <laughs> Me too. I miss it. It it um it was an incredible experience, and and certainly no no end to the fun. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being a guest today, Shannon. I learned so much in this hour and twenty five minutes of talking <laughs> with you. I feel like I've I've really learned so much from you and gotten so much value from speaking to you. So thank you so much for your time. Oh my goodness, I had the best time. It is such a pleasure to be on with you and you have certainly inspired me through many difficult times because we've known each other now for uh, a while and I just am I'm very happy that I have the privilege of being with you and being with your listeners and I'm very excited to uh, just see how people are able to bring out their their best self and their unlimited potential by trying some of the techniques and, and rediscovering the hidden happiness that we're, we're needing to rediscover to really wake up our true potential. Uh, so well said, as is everything you say, Shannon. <laughs> thank, thank, <sighs> thank you, you so, so much. much. <laughs> All the best. <laughs> bye. All right, bye.